Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello. Welcome to the New Books in African Studies podcast. I am your host, Ari Barbalat. Today, it is my blessing and my hallowed honor to be in dialogue with Tula Simpson. He is Associate Professor in the Department of Historical and Heritage Studies at the University of Pretoria. Today, we will be discussing his newly published book, History of South Africa from 1902 to the Present, published in London by Hearst Publishers, 2021. Tula, I'm absolutely grateful for your time today. And I'm honored for you giving me the time. Thank you very much. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Thank you. I could not be more grateful. Please start off by kindly telling us about yourself. Where did you grow up? What formative events in your life inspired the scholar and writer you are today? That is the biggest of questions. I was born in 1980 in Raleigh-Fitkin Memorial Hospital in um, a place which is now called Eswatini, but it was then Swaziland. We lived for eight years, a happy, idyllic life from a youngster's point of view on the University of Swaziland campus. But then in 1988, we moved to um, England as refugees. We were in England for 19 years um, in various parts of the country, the southwestern Plymouth in London, and then in the last year in Oxford. My love for history was kindled in high school at um, Chiswick Community School. It was the subject where um, I was happy to read around and beyond and above the subject. I had a passion for it. I continued through history at my A-levels and then through to my undergraduate years at um, King's College in London. I was fortunate enough to get it first, which enabled me to go on and do a PhD at Birkbeck College. And once I got my PhD, it was to a postdoc at the University of Pretoria, where in one form or another I've been ever since. Uh, my research is focused on the armed struggle of the African National Congress's military wing and contour Caesar, and that was my first book. And I wanted to broaden that out and touch on wider questions, and that led to my history of South Africa. And in a nutshell, very brief um, crash course through my uh, biography, it's um, the, the story about why and how I managed to be here today. What inspired you to write this book? What message do you hope to convey to readers? What was the gestation and the birth of the book? Well, one, there were many. One of them was writing the history of Mkontua Caesar, but always having to narrow my research findings down to what the sources had to say about the armed struggle of the African National Congress. Now, what's important about the rise of the ANC is that's the rise of modern South Africa. There were broader content in all of those sources, broader pieces of content which I had to edit out because it wasn't on my topic. So I knew I had the basis for a topic which could answer a lot of questions about the origins of modern South Africa. Another inspiration was teaching the rise and fall of segregation and apartheid. And it was a course which I took over and it really cut off in 1994 as a watershed of the ANC coming to power. I teach post-apartheid generations of students. They have new questions, new origins that they want to explore. 
new controversies. And I felt I had the source material to be able to answer some of those questions as well. That was another important consideration as well. One of the blessings of being a historian of the ANC's on struggle was doing material which very few people had written about before. Um, I was often there present at the moment of declassification of sources, but I also had a desire to tap into more mainstream controversies amongst historians of South Africa, to touch with central debates within the literature. And moving from the ANC's armed struggle to a history of South Africa would enable me to do precisely that and to be able to integrate with those conventional um, debates within South African historiography, but with a new perspective based on new sources, new questions, and new answers that I wanted to provide. I have a, I have a sense that um, if you're going to engage on a project which is as labor and time consuming as uh, the book which I've just um, undertaken, you need to have multiple points of motivation. So I've mentioned three, but there were other ones besides. I mean, those are three of the major ones, but there have to be many points which keep you going as far as that is concerned. So this was one which had a lot of areas where I felt that I wanted to get into this and I felt that it would be a rich and enlivening experience. And so it has proved. What are the primary themes in your book? What argument does your book advance? Primary themes in the book, when historians speak, there are two, um, there's this concept of total history. And what I felt was that as a historian of the armed struggle, I had been focused on popular politics and resistance movements as my area of specialization. So this is in a sense is an answer which bridges also the last question which you asked as well. I wanted to get involved in and to develop my literacy in other areas of history, cultural history, um, economic history. Um, social history, sports history. And I wanted a, a, a history of South Africa offers a canvas broad enough for you to integrate all of those aspects and to try and weave them together. And I wanted to have that very large canvas on which I could paint. And those themes are basically how do these different aspects of South African life dovetail with each other, influence each other? How does the, the economy influence the politics? How does the culture influence the economy? And how does that change over time? And I wanted to grapple with that to gain a better understanding of the history of South Africa, but also to develop a broader dimensions and um, aspects and layers to myself as a historian, just generally speaking as well. So those are some of the um, themes that were involved in those books about how do we weave all of these together? How does how, how do you develop narrative that is capable of encompassing all of these different cross-cutting themes without getting lost? in narrative and make you know how do you how do you make that com um uh, coherent uh it was a test of me as a stylist as well so yes in terms of um theory and methodology those were the some of the central questions which were driving and motivating what i was trying to do here what would you like listeners to get out of our dialogue today i am feeling that we've already got one on the board with regards to spreading awareness of the existence of the book and it's another reason for me to be thankful to you for having granted me the you know this um, bandwidth as far as that is concerned i would like them to be introduced to me as a historian and to my approach um to engage and connect with um, a possible readership who are interested in many of these same questions uh, not just the history of South Africa, which is obviously central in, with in, with regards to content, but also with regards to the methodology uh, behind the book. And hopefully there'll be a life after the interview with regards to potential connections of people who will have read the book and who I may have the fortune of coming into contact with at some future stage where we can collectively develop and advance some of these themes. Can you tell us about the origins and evolution of the South African Native National Congress, the SANNC? What does your research reveal about it? The South African Native National Congress is basically the African National Congress with a name change in 1923. So when we're speaking about central connective threads, in other words, what I look to do is how these different themes connect with each other, interpenetrate with each other. But one of these ones within this very complex and tangled history, which sustains us basically for most of the um, book, is the rise and trajectory of the African National Congress. Obviously, it's very central in shaping South Africa's trajectory as a country, but also with regards to what I would look to um, engage with people in terms of finding out things that may not have known before. 
is how the ANC has um, evolved and why that would be important for somebody with a rudimentary understanding of South African history is that there's a tendency on the ANC side to present the ANC's history as a teleology, marching forward in unity and greater strength towards a preconceived end. But if you look at the origins of the ANC, it was a Victorian liberal organization based around property ownership and not struggling for the franchise at all. The person who called for the formation of the ANC, somebody by the name of Pixley Semmer, he said, we're not calling for the franchise. What we're calling for is a liaison body to work with the government and making sure the government has is appraised of informed African opinion when developing policies that affect Africans. It follows on from that, that the ANC in its foundations was not opposed to segregation. It was literally informed as being a, the, the founding president of the ANC was John Dubé, and he said, um, I take as my patron saint, Booker T. Washington. How does segregation move from being the goal and envisaged, envisaged way in which the ANC would operate into something that the ANC has to destroy. That takes us through seminal challenges like the Native Land Act, which was the model of segregation that the South African government sought to develop. I'm not going to regurgitate the whole of the ANC's um, evolution, the twists and turns of, of its trajectory, but obviously it's a central connective theme, the growth basically of African black nationalism in the country. And it's one of the um, sort of uh, central trajectories that we follow in the book. What were the stipulations and implications of the Natives Land Bill of May 1913? How does your research shed new light on it? Well, I've touched on that slightly already, and that is the specific model that segregation is going to take. Now, what people may know with a sort of skyscraper view of South African history is that the ANC in its early years is launching petitions to London. The first petition is in 1914 because South Africa is part of the British Empire. And that first petition is basically saying we've received assurances about how the Natives Land Act is going to operate, and we feel reassured by that. But what we want to get from the British government is a commitment that those principles are going to be followed. What is the backstory there? When the government announces in February 1913 that it's going to pass this legislation, it says what we're going to do is establish a commission to decide which parts of um, South Africa will be um, dedicated for black Africans and which ones will form part of white South Africa. What's enunciated is a principle, but the content is yet to be decided. And when the ANC launches that voyage to London in 1914, the details still haven't been worked out. What they are asking the British government to commit themselves to is that they will have a just and equitable separation of the territory of the country. Now, it is the 1916 Beaumont Commission that delivers the determination, and that is a huge disappointment for the ANC because what is the consequence of a non-just and non-equitable distribution? It will be, as the ANC says, in its response to the Beaumont Commission, they have an emergency meeting a month afterwards, and they say, this is a scheme to deprive us of land, to reduce our bargaining power as laborers, and to reduce us to a permanent con condition of servile leadership. It is that determination of what segregation in South Africa will mean, related to my previous answer, which begins to launch this um, realignment of black politics. Because if the policy of the government is to uh, manufacture cheap labor, which is the title of one of the rallies that the ANC attended in um, uh, just after the uh, passage of the Beaumont Commission report, then we can't look to the government as being a partner in ensuring African social and economic uplift. It means that there's a much more contentious relationship that will emerge between the ANC and the government. What exactly that struggle will consist of is something that takes working out, but that working out is basically it's the informing DNA of the liberation struggle in the country. And so the 1913 Land Act is a major watershed in this story of the growth and rise of South Africa and in terms of determining what South Africa will look like politically, economically, socially, and in other ways. Can you comment on the vicissitudes of Soviet-South African relations in the post-revolutionary years after the Russian Revolution and in the interwar years? What did the Russian Revolution mean for South Africa and to South Africans? 
Now, again, related to the previous answer, it's important to note that it did not take October 1917 to lead the ANC to this characterization that the South African state is one based on the manufacture of cheap labor. That is something which predates the Russian Revolution. It is a trajectory which the ANC is moving into. But that realignment of South African politics creates space. Socialism was not even a fledgling idea before 1917. But there's this realization that this is a government which is based on white supremacy, and in the economic realm, that means black cheap labor is the basis. What the Soviet Union comes and it provides a model which many in South Africa, which they feel they can adopt. To recap, if we go back to the formation of the ANC, it was this idea that we will work with the state as a partner. If the state is not committed in good faith to ensuring black economic uplift on the basis of property ownership and capital accumulation, then the new relationship is one, a conflictual relationship, and it is about state power. The Soviet Union in the long term, and I spoke about the realignment of South African politics being a process rather than an event, as that process unfolds, the Soviet Union is in a position to both provide the means in terms of supporting an armed struggle, which is a position that the ANC is eventually led to in the early 1960s. The Soviet Union, above all others, is able to provide the training and the military hardware for that struggle. It is able to inform the road to liberation in this struggle and is also able to provide the ideal of what comes after the struggle in terms of how you reconstruct a society once you have achieved the goal of the liberation struggle, which comes to be defined as taking state power, the achievement of state power. So there's a place created for the Soviet Union, and the Soviet Union, above all, is the one which fills that space as this struggle within South Africa grows and matures as the 20th century um, develops. Can you tell us what the origins of the term apartheid? The first known in the literature so far reference to apartheid comes in the 1943 World War II. Um, we call them khaki elections here, basically in the atmosphere of war elections. And that is when D.F. Milan, who's the leader of the then opposition National Party, calls for an apartheid of residential areas. It's important that he mentions residential areas because apartheid is linked to the evolution of segregation. So we're talking about 1943. I've spoken about segregation and apartheid dating to the Natives Land Act. It's important to remember that apartheid is a stage of South African segregation. It is not the entire history of segregation. So when we speak about apartheid, we're speaking about what stage of this process has segregation come to. And what we've got in South Africa by the 1930s and 1940s is an economy which in global terms is extremely vibrant and dynamic. It has basically brushed off the Great Depression. It has significantly increased, but how it has increased is it has moved to develop and integrate the um, technologies of the second industrial revolution. I want to just clarify for anybody to whom that may not be clear. We know about the first industrial revolution, which is the use of coal as a source of energy. But when we speak about the second industrial revolution, we're speaking about the uh, development of electricity in the um, 1860s and 70s, and we're speaking about iron and steel. In 1922, South Africa develops the um, ESCOMs, which is about electricity generation, but it also develops ISCOR, iron and steel. And this is about powering the economy beyond mining and agriculture. I want to lead us out of the desert, which I've walked into because other people will be wondering how much further is he going to take us here? Once you've got electricity, iron and steel, you've got the ingredients for a manufacturing economy. You're moving away from mines and agriculture. What happens socially when you move away from mines and agriculture? Well, as you move away from agriculture, you're moving away from rural areas. You move away from mines, these are areas which have had close compounds. What you've got in the 1930s and 40s is the beginning of people migrating towards the cities. We've got the birth of what will become the iconic areas of black settlement, which are these black areas, which in the 1940s are called shanty towns. They will later become known as townships. But this is a consequence of the shift of the economy. And it's that 
development, which apartheid is a response to. So it's fitting that they're talking in 1943 about what will we do about residential areas. In the 1948 elections, the National Party runs the 1948 elections on the slogan of apartheid. And what they are basically saying is we're de- we are faced with a process here in which traditionally white areas of South Africa, and that dates to the 1913 Land Act, there was this idea that there would be white areas and black areas. White South Africa is vanishing as a result of this process of migration. And it's not just that white areas becoming increasingly Africanized. What we're having as we've got these social and economic backlogs in these shanty towns is the emergence of a new militant radical politics. The response of the National Party is to say, what we need to do is we need to start clamping down on these new forms of politics, which also start infecting the ANC, which moves in a direction of mass action during the 1940s. So we need security legislation. So when people speak and uh, refer to apartheid now, the iconic images are of state repression. That is conscious. It's how do we deal with this new radicalism, which is emerging as a result of these social and economic trends. And also, how do we preserve white South Africa? How do we, on the one hand, make sure that blacks stay in their areas, which have traditionally always been theirs, and we keep white South Africa white? When people speak about apartheid, they will refer to the forced removals of millions of people being removed, relocated from white South Africa to black South Africa. That's another aspect. But also, what the National Party is saying is, against their critics who say, your plan will crash this economy, they say, no, we will not crash this economy. We will continue to rely on black labor in which the economy is reliant, but it will be a migrant labor system. In other words, one in which we preserve the homelands as the rightful area of black settlement. So if we've got blacks in white areas and the National Party is not denying this, you need to have a whole raft of legislation to try and keep those areas, white spaces in those areas white. And that is where you get all of these municipal bylaws, beach bylaws about white beaches, white parks, white cinemas. So when we speak about the sort of trifecta of apartheid and what it what it, what it comes to be, um, I, I would imagine popularly associated with repressive legislation of Africans, policemen beating up whites with um, uh, batons, people dying in custody. That is one significant pillar of apartheid. The other is the forced removals. It's sometimes called grand apartheid, the macro level relocation of the population. That's the second one. The third one is within white areas. It's called petty apartheid. All of these things to maintain beaches, parks, and all the rest as white areas. Those are sort of three main areas of apartheid. But what I would encourage people to think about and understand when they refer to apartheid is the macro level big arrow change, which it is attempting to reverse engineer. And ultimately, the downfall of apartheid will be the failure of the the attempt to reverse engineer these large scale social and economic processes. What does your research reveal? about Jan Smut as a wartime leader and as a political figure of note in South African history? Well, the book deals with Jan Smuts as a Boer War general. So we speak about him as a wartime leader. We're speaking about him fighting the British Empire, but then we also see him rise as a result of the reconciliation between the British and the Boers. The British basically decide to hand South Africa over to the Boers. And that follows on from a direct appeal which Jan Smuts made in 1905-1906, where he travels to Britain after an election which leads to a change of government. And he says, you can trust us to be faithful uh, members of the empire. We're no longer fighting for the republics. And so he will fight on Britain's side in the First and the Second World War, lead South Africa during those wars. He will serve in the Imperial War Cabinet. He will have a very close and intimate relationship with um, uh, Winston Churchill. Uh, in his um, Battle of Britain speech, he refers to, he just goes, I, I quote the section where he basically rhapsodizes over Smuts's qualities as somebody looking over the European scene and with his penetrating eye from a distance. So Jan Smuts is somebody the British rate very highly. He's also one of the three major figures in the first half of the 20th century, who basically is the architect of the South Africa that develops. The other ones are Louis Berta, who's the first prime minister, and J.B.M. Herzog is the second. So 
in terms of the development of South Africa as a state, in terms of all of its characteristic policies, Jan Smuts is somebody who's very closely involved at the at the coalface as far as that is concerned. What new insights does your research reveal about the life of Nelson Mandela? With regards to new insights on the life of Nelson Mandela, he's if if the ANC is a central organization, Nelson Mandela is a central figure. And um what I've basically tried to do and what will um, perhaps come as an insight for many people is in, in, in many instances, in many ways, too, too many to remember, is to um, use that primary research information to inform my account. One of the ways in which I'm sort of hedging my best with regards to this answer is that you can never tell what will be new to every reader and there'll be some reader who will say, oh, I knew that. But what this book does, it reveals a whole... A, a significant quantity of original research material, which has bearings on how Mandela inserted himself into these key dramas at various stages of South African history. What new insights does your research reveal regarding the Second Anglo-Bulgar War? What were the causes and consequences? What were the reasons and results of this conflict? The Second Anglo-Boer War is from 1899 to 1902, often called the Boer War simply or the South African War. And this was basically a follow-on from the discovery of um, gold in the Boer Republic, which was then called the Transvaal. And this shifts the center of economic gravity in South Africa. Remember that South Africa until that point was a mere geographical term rather than a political expression. And that leads to a struggle for power between the British and the Boers because there's the understanding that who controls the rand, the Witwatersrand where the gold is formed, will control the destiny of South Africa. And what the British are fearful of is the emergence of a new United States of um, United States of America in Africa, for want of a better word. In other words, this new colony which will outgrow its mother country and become a magnet for settlers and will become a threat to Britain in the long term. And so the British um, fight the Second Anglo-Boer War. Uh, they fairly rapidly, after initial setbacks, managed to conquer the capitals of Pretoria, which is the capital of the Transvaal and the um, Bloemfontein, which is the capital of the Orange Free State, the other Boer Republic, which fought alongside Transvaal. Then you've got the shift of the war into guerrilla warfare, and in response to that, the British developed tactics such as the scorched earth policy, um, which is basically raising farms to basically drain the swamp and make sure that, to mix metaphors, to drain the swamp to make sure that uh, Boer guerrillas will not be able to be supplied off the land. And then concentration camps as well to make sure that they don't have a networks of uh, human intelligence and support. And they managed to win that war. And it is that war which makes it possible for Britain to unify South Africa by 1910. And from 1910, South Africa is no longer a geographical expression, but it is a political unit and the, and the political unit that we know. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. What does your research teach us about the life 
of Jacob Zuma. Can you say more about him through the lens of your findings? Jacob Zuma emerges within the ANC as a young member who is recruited into Nkontoesis with the ANC's military wing. He's arrested in 1963. Um, he serves 10 years in prison. He's released, therefore, in the mid-1970s, and he becomes a frontline commander for the ANC. So he's basically... If there was a South African version of Hamilton, you've got many of these rags to riches stories for the regrettable reason that many South African, black South Africans are raised in rags, basically in impoverished circumstances. So there's no shortage of stories to choose from. And um, Jacob Zuma is certainly one of those whose um, life is within the organization, who rises up within the organization. And he rises from very humble beginnings to being the head of state of the country. So he's another important spinal figure. Um, his uh, presidency becomes um, controversial for the controversy, which is known as state capture. One of the chapters in the book is called Captive State, which deals with all of the controversies about basically how state sovereignty is mortgaged uh, by the ruling elites in the country um, in return for uh, financial benefits which are privatized. And unfortunately, that's what it has come to be associate that that is what has come to be associated with Jacob Zuma's name and his presidency and the country is still working itself um, through the implications of that devastating uh, period in our history. What were the organization of African Unities or OAU's stances towards South Africa? Can you comment on the complexities of these relations and perceptions on the one hand it's not complex at all it's very simple on the one hand um, it's formed the oau in the uh, mid-1963 and its mandate is simply to complete the liberation of um the african continent so you had the first wave of decolonization which starts with the independence of ghana but that stalls because you've got white settler regimes and the portuguese colonial regime and the organization of African unity as one simple mandate to complete the process and make sure the majority rule spreads over the whole of the continent. But the white minority and uh, the settler colonial, the settler and colonial regimes are by no means a pushover. And so there's very complex diplomacy that the OAU is involved in, in terms of trying to achieve its overall objective. At various stages, various members of the OAU have separate non-aggression pacts and cooperation agreements with the white redoubt, and that introduces an element of disunity within the Organization of African Unity simply because different African countries who are on the front line have to um, calibrate their diplomacy with the South African government in different ways. But that, whilst that adds complexity, there's another important sense in which it's the simplest of things, which is that the Organization of African Unity is simply committed to achieving majority rule in all of these countries. Can you tell us about Albert Luthuli? Why is he significant? Albert Luthuli is the first of our political Nobel laureates. He is the president of the African National Congress from December uh, 1952, and in one form or another until his death in 1967. 1952 is an important year because that is the year in which the ANC, which had previously been a pamphleteering and petitioning organization, decides for the first time to launch mass action. Actually, it had decided in 1949, but it actually launches the mass action in 1952 as part of the Defiance campaign. Albert Lutuli is important because he's the person who leads the ANC through this process. He defines what nonviolence will mean in this context. It's very easy to be nonviolent when you are not engaged in mass action, but when you are engaged in mass action, what does nonviolence mean? You've got lots of grassroots um, frustration with the um, limitations of the struggle, and you've got people like Nelson Mandela calling for armed struggle. One of Nelson uh, Nutuli's controversies is over the question of violence, where he, artic he, he articulates himself as one of the um, leading voices in terms of encouraging caution and circumspection in this process. And it is for, and there's a huge irony in this, Albert Natuli gets the Nobel Prize in 1961 for constantly advocating for nonviolence. He receives the award in Oslo. He returns to Durban on the 15th of December 1961, the very day at which 
and come to a season where it launches its first operations, which are launched in Durban the day he comes back. And he was aware of this and he was apprised of this, that the reasons for him achieving the Nobel Prize might have been valid when he had received the award, but they no longer are at the time that he's actually going to collect it because he has lost this debate within the organization. Can you tell us about Thabo Mbeki? How does your research recontextualize him? He is another one like Jacob Zuma, who was a young member of the organization at the time that it was banned on the 8th of April 1960, who rises from the organization in exile. He worked alongside Jacob Zuma in Swaziland when Jacob Zuma was released uh, in the, Jacob Zuma was released in 1973. He crosses the border a couple of years later. He works with Tabo Mbeki, so they have a close working relationship. And after liberation in 1994, Mandela is the first president. Mbeki takes over from Mandela and Jacob Zuma becomes his deputy president between um, 1999 and um, 2008 when uh, Mbeki leaves the stage. He is the person, he was the first deputy president in the government of national unity in 1994. So he's Nelson Mandela's deputy and how people have conceptualized this and there's no factual um, evidence to say that this is wrong is that Nelson Mandela focused during his one-term presidency on many of the ceremonial aspects of the job. Thabo Mbeki focused on the nuts and bolts. He was the architect in many ways of the economic policy. He was closely involved in specifically, he hasn't got the charisma of Nelson Mandela who has, but he's the person involved in actually putting flesh on the ANC's policies and working out what they practically mean um, in terms of the pros of government, as the ANC moves from the pros, uh, the poetry of opposition to the pros of governance. And so he's a very important bridge figure in that regard. What was Operation Vula? What were the repercussions? Can you explain what transpired? Operation Vuna is the ANC's attempt to build an underground leadership uh, within South Africa because after they were banned within the organization, the organization had to regroup from exile. The government's strategy is to keep the ANC as far away from the South African borders as possible. The South African opposition, the ANC, obviously has an interest to defeat that strategy. And the only way you can defeat that strategy is by making sure that you've entrenched underground political and military structures within the country. Many attempts to do this preceded Operation Vula. Operation Vula is the most elaborate. It is well known for its use of computer technology to keep the ANC's various headquarters in Lusaka, London, and the ones that they established in South Africa in communication and contact with each other. Operation Vula goes operational in 1988 when the first um, leaders are sent into the country to uh, organize leadership structures, but the lifespan of Operation Vula overlaps with the legalization of the organization, and Operation Vula is uprooted by the South African police after um, the ANC has been legalized within the country, and its uprooting becomes one of the early controversies which provides an obstacle towards negotiations, because once the ANC was released in 1990, it took quite a while for negotiations to get going. The delay was due to the mutual distrust where the ANC was um, viewing the government as fomenting under um, violence against the ANC supporters through a third force. And um, by the same token, the government viewed the ANC as basically trying to continue its armed struggle by other means. And um, the uprooting of Operation Vula was ex Exhibit 1 as far as that was concerned on the government side. What were the causes and consequences of the RAND revolt? Can you explain this event for us? The RAND revolt is part of a longer-term process where if you're going to have a white supremacist society, you're going to have a white working class, how do you position them as an aristocracy of labor? 
what people are sometimes surprised by are the number of attempts during the first half of the 20th century that it is whites and not Africans who attempt to overthrow the government. And the Rand Revolt is in many ways the most elaborate of these. It's a revolt in 1922 after the Chamber of Mines had announced its intention to get rid of reserved jobs for whites. It was called the status quo agreement. It was their plan by the mine-owning capitalists to get rid of certain skilled jobs which are reserved for whites and replace them with Africans, which in the context of post-World War One economic, global economic instability, it was viewed as being a way of controlling costs. And so in response to that undercutting, you had this revolutionary movement that developed amongst whites. And the irony of the that revolt is that it is workers of the world unite so far so marxist with regards to the aftermath of the bolshevik revolution but it ends workers of the world unite and fight for a white south africa so they're revolutionary against the government but they are reactionary against their black working class counterparts it just shows the sort of paradoxical contradictory position of an aristocrat, a, a labor aristocracy whose aristocratic status is based on race. They revolt against the government and capitalism over the capitalist idea, which is backed by government, to undercut their privileges within the um, world of work. But their revolution collapses because they are not able to secure sufficient white support um, for their attempts. And so they're crushed in the early months of 1922. Can you tell us about Chief Mangosutu Putelezi? What does your research reveal about him? Can you contextualize him for us? Well, his life is topic in that he's, at the time of us speaking, been, um, he, he's died at the age of 95. He was the leader of the Inkata um, cultural movement, which was established in um, 1975. Now, what's important about Inkata is that it's closely linked to the KwaZulu homeland, Part of the apartheid ideology was that South Africa can identify itself in the international community as not being a laggard and as a backwater in the era of decolonization because it can say we're also doing decolonization. We're handing over independence to these native, former native reserves. The world doesn't buy it, of course, but South African government is powerful in its own domain. And when it articulates this position, blacks are left with the question of how might they defeat this policy? The largest ethnic group in South Africa are the Zulu population, and Utlezi is important in that he decides to enter the apartheid scheme as far as the homelands are concerned, but in order to take over the KwaZulu government and to never accept independence, with that being the way that the apartheid ideology can be defeated, because if they will never accept independence, the apartheid strategy of foisting independence on the African population will never succeed. There's all sorts of ambiguities about to what extent if you're working within the system where you're collaborating with the system against more revolutionary and radical change. And what you've got in the 1970s and 80s, especially 80s especially, is a revolt which targets collaborators and puppets and that leads to war between, and when I say collaborators and puppets, I'm obviously using the ANC's terminology rather than my own. That leads to conflicts between ANC supporters and Inkata supporters because you've got the situation that the Inkata movement is working within a system that the ANC would like to overthrow. And that is the bloodiest, most conflicted period of the whole liberation struggle and actually more people die in this struggle between apartheid and Inkata, which spreads over the period where the ANC is legalized. More people die in that conflict than died in the conflict between the liberation movement and the apartheid state per se. Can you tell the story of Steve Biko? What happened to him? Can you tell us about his life and his death and his fate? When the government bans the African National Congress and the Pan-Africanist Congress in um, April 1960, it is committing itself to a program of decapitating the leadership of the organization. And within five years, you will have Lutuli banished to his home area in rural Natal, 
unable to communicate effectively. Nelson Mandela imprisoned on Robben Island. Oliver Tambo, who becomes the ANC president, but he is the president in exile. You've got this dispersal of ANC leadership under the weight of state repression. This creates a vacuum, and the vacuum is specifically the fact that middle and older leadership have been taken out. And this creates a opening which is filled by youth student politics. And Steve Biko is one of the brightest and the best who is emerging in the late 1960s, and he forms the South African Students' Organization. Initially, he's not repressed by the state, firstly, because they focus on student politics, secondly, because they develop this ideology called black consciousness, which begins to develop a critique of collaboration with liberal white South Africans. It begins questioning the actual commitment of white liberals to African liberation. And this is viewed in the apartheid government perspective as being something which is not necessarily against their ideology of, of um, getting eliminating integration between blacks and whites and promoting separation. The big turn comes when the ANC, the, the South African Student Organization starts developing what it calls nation building and it starts building structures and this includes political structures and that's when they start challenging the government and that's where the repression is introduced. And in the early 1970s, Steve Biko will join those who've been banned by the government. In 1976, he is banned to his home area, which is in um, the Eastern Cape. But you will have in 1976, June 1976, student protests, which erupt first in Soweto and then spread like wildfire across the country. And this will be unmistakably linked with Steve Biko's legacy. Why? Because the South African Student Organization, and this is a sort of direct transmission, they decided to form another organization to organize high school kids rather than the university students, which they were. And that organization is called the South African Students Movement. And it's South African Students Movement members who organize the protests that will lead to the Soweto uprising. This is all within the black consciousness era of the liberation struggle. And Steve Biko comes to be seen ultimately as being as big a threat to the South African government as any of the other leaders, such as um, Mandela or Lutuli or Tambo ever were. And it's reflected in the fact that um, he ends his days in uh, incarceration, where he dies as a result of bruises to his head suffered during a brutal interrogation and um he basically is one of the activists who die in police custody and he dies in 1977. can you tell us about the sharpville massacre what does your research reveal about this tragedy yeah the sharpville massacre is 21st of march 1960 and it is a demonstration against the past laws it's part of the logic which is set into motion by the 1913 land act if you're going to have black areas and white areas you need to be able to have some way of policing them if there to be something more than a dead letter and the mechanism of implement, implementing them above all is the past laws where blacks had to provide passports to show that they had the right to be where they were in the country. And part of the strategy which liberation movements develop when they move to mass action, I spoke about the Defiance Campaign of 1952. The idea there was that Africans would um, simply disobey the laws and defy the government to either arrest them, in which case the prisons would so overflow that they would have to be released and that would be unworkable or they would alternatively not arrest them and allow the law to be flouted openly. It's part of a rationale of trying to make numbers work. And the idea, the rationale behind these protests is, to some extent, a minority can only rule the majority if the minority can, to some extent, count on not the enthusiastic approval, but the sort of tacit quiescence of the population. And the Pan-Africanist Congress, which breaks away from the ANC in 1958-59, decides to organize a protest against the past laws on the same principle. And that is the idea that as a protest, we will encourage inhabitants to go to police stations 
and say that they are not carrying the passes that they're required to carry. And that puts the police in the same dilemma that the Defiance campaign tried to put them in almost a decade previously, of either arresting the population and having the prisons so overflow that the legal system will jam up, workers will be, industries will be deprived of workers to the extent that they will become dysfunctional and either go through with it and have the um, disruption and chaos of that or allow the law to be flouted with impunity. What happens though, as a result of this, that you've got people showing up at police stations, large crowds at police stations, and you've got tense situations which developed that day, 21st of March, 1960, on the perimeter of these police stations. People had been killed earlier in, well, two people had been killed even before um, the crowd starts gathering at Sharpville around midday that day. And then there's a small thing, there's various accounts which have different perspectives about what exactly was the trigger. But then there was an incident which caused one or two policemen to start opening fire on the crowd. And then there was a chain reaction amongst the policemen and all of them started opening fire. And in the end, you had 67 people who were killed. Um, I was going to say on the fence, it's not on the fence. Only a couple of them were killed on the fence. Many more people were killed running away. And the forensic um, reports showed that many of them were killed in the back, so killed by shots, bullet wounds, which they, which which pierced them from behind. So it was basically a massacre where you had this panicked reaction by the police, which developed into a chain reaction, which developed into a massacre, and that's the Sharpeville massacre. Um, leads to international condemnation of South Africa, and within 18 days, it will lead to the banning of the ANC, and. By the time the ANC is banned, 18 days after the Sharpeville massacre, you've already had the South African nation um, subjected to a, a state of emergency, which will see many thousands of people arrested. What new perspectives does your research glean regarding H.F. Verward or Hendrik French Verward? Can you elaborate on your findings regarding him? How does your book present him? What yeah, no, new insights? That's another one of those where somebody, uh, all it takes is one person to put their hand up and say, "I did, I knew that for it not to be new." So it can't be new to everybody sure, at one sure. shot. But but there's one thing which is conventional in the historiography of South Africa, which I think needs to be seriously revised, which is the extent to which he was actually a true believer of the apartheid system, because I think there's compelling evidence to suggest that he wasn't. There's a chapter in the book called The Silent Sixties, which basically starts with all of the gyrations which were introduced by him over the apartheid policy. People often speak about him as being one of his one of the statements that he made to a National Party Congress was, we must stand like granite in all aspects of apartheid. But that section of the book, it's actually been serialized in, a, uh, in one of these South African newspapers. It shows that rather than being like granite, he was actually quite flexible and malleable in many aspects of apartheid. He was willing to turn a blind eye to industrialists flouting the color bar job reservation, for example. He was... Um, contrary to National Party ideology, in reality, actually quite relaxed about the growth of a permanent African population in white areas. He says, as long as it's not intermarriage and it's not living in um, integration neighborhoods, then there's not any immediate emergency or crisis in having these um, satellite communities around um, our major urban areas. He was much more pragmatic than he's been given credit for. This idea, which he liked to propagate being a man of iron, is not... Um, borne out by the empirical evidence uh, of how he actually um, governed. And if we're looking at the sort of big arrow, major trajectory developments, I think that his willingness to actually be flexible on certain fundamental tenets of apartheid is a central determining factor in the overall outcome of the story that I'm trying to tell in the book. Can you tell us about Michael Harmel's report, South Africa, What Next? What did it call for? What was its legacy? Yeah, this is a document which is actually produced during the state of emergency, the aforementioned state of emergency, which is introduced at the end of March 1960, just days after the Sharpeville massacre. And South Africa, What Next is putting in written form 
a discussion which many people have been having throughout the previous decade, i.e. the 1950s, where people are saying that our nonviolence is not getting us anywhere against a government which is willing to use violence against us. Now, the question that Homo most famously poses in South Africa, what next, is has the time come for violence? He doesn't say that it has, but he says that a discussion needs to be launched within the liberation movement over the question of whether the tactics which the liberation movement has pursued up to that stage are sufficient. And what is the longer term significance of South Africa, what next as a bridge, is that it's a bridge to the eventual formation of Mkwantu Assis, where that discussion leads to the ANC deciding to not obstruct, to not veto Nelson Mandela's proposal to form a military wing, and he will become the first commander of Nkuntu Asizwe. How does your research contextualize or recontextualize F.W. de Klerk or Frederick Willem de Klerk? Frederick Willem de Klerk, again, it depends on what the concept of the individual trial will have as far as that is concerned. But I think that what comes out in the book is the significance of the leap of faith that he was prepared to take on the 2nd of February 1990. He was basically prepared to roll the dice with the idea that apartheid was untenable as a result of a series and a succession of blows that it had suffered over many years, that it was destroying the country's economy, and that whilst the long-term trajectory would undoubtedly lead to majority rule, he wanted to grab the ball by its horns and actually negotiate a democratic constitution which would provide the softest possible landing, best possible constitutional outcome with regards to the move away from apartheid. So that was a very big step that he took on the 2nd of February 1990, and that is the basically the speech that he made where he decided to completely um, lift the prohibition of the ANC, the PAC, and the South African Communist Party, unconditionally release Nelson Mandela, and engage in negotiations without precondition. It basically put us on the trajectory that we're on today. Can you tell us about Oliver Tambo? What new light does your book shed on him? Oliver Tambo was the leader of the ANC in exile. So he was effectively the leader when Albert Lutuli was restricted and he became, in fact, the leader from 1967 after Oliver Tambo, sorry, after Albert Lutuli um, passed away. With regards to new perspectives, I think that what's important there is that my research in the book, as far as Tambo is concerned, draws on aspects of my research for my book on Inconsistencies. When what's important about that is it shows important aspects which have not been integrated into sort of general histories of South Africa about how the armed struggle might be integrated into the broader history of South Africa. The history of the armed struggle for many necessary reasons, one of them is that the sources have not been declassified which will enable us to write the story, has never satisfactorily been integrated into the broader trajectory and history of South Africa. But I had the sources which would enable me to begin to able to offer some perspective about the various campaigns that um, Tambo led, what he was trying to achieve, and how the ANC's external mission, of which Tambo was the leader, fed into the overall history of South Africa. And I think that it's those aspects of integrating the liberation struggle, of which the central aspect was the armed struggle, and integrating that into the history of South Africa. I think that's where the most important and distinctive aspects of the treatment of Tambo are provided. I think he's very a marginal figure in many histories of South Africa. You'll find, you know, at most one or two references to him and those being quite fleeting. But I think that he's given the categorization which he deserves, which is as a major figure within my history of South Africa. Can you tell us about the Ravonia trial? How does your research recontextualize it? Ravonia trial is the trial of the high command of Mkonto which Nelson Mandela's high command. He was arrested. Mandela was arrested on the 5th of August, 1962, and his colleagues were arrested on the 11th of July, most of them were arrested on the 11th of July, 1963. 
at their underground headquarters at a place called Lindisley Farm, which is in Ravonia, hence the Ravonia trial. And that was basically the Ravonia trial is the trial of the controversies of high command. It's a treasure trove of priceless documents which were uncovered by the police. It's in many ways the first ANC archive. And amongst the um, treasures which are existed within that archive are Nelson Mandela's diary um, of a tour that he made of Africa in the early months of 1962. He told his colleagues in the ANC to destroy those and all other documents that could be traced to him. Fortunately for historians, unfortunately for the MK High Command, that order was not taken because they wanted to preserve this archive. That archive, of course, fell into the hands of the South African police. But in terms of the exhibits, another one is Operation Maibuya, which is Kuntuasisa's um, first blueprint for guerrilla warfare. These are all exhibits of the Ravonia trial, but then there's also the testimony as well. And it's during the Ravonia trial that Nelson Mandela makes his famous speech from the dock where he um, basically his final words are about how he's devoted his life to the struggle of the African people. He's fought against white domination. He's fought against black domination. He's fought for a country of equal opportunities. It's what he's strived for all his life and that he's prepared to die. When he says he's prepared to die, he's referring to the fact that he is, it's a, it's a capital trial, you know, it's a capital offense he's been charged with and that if he's found guilty, there's a possibility of him facing the death penalty. None of the Rivonia defendants um, face the death penalty in the end. And so what we have, it's that is the trial at which Mandela, Sisulu, and all of those are locked up, and that's the reason why Nelson Mandela is um, in prison for 27 years. It's because of the Ravonia trial. What does your research reveal about the coronavirus crisis in South Africa? What was unique about South Africa's handling of the COVID-19 virus vis-a-vis -vis other countries in Africa? and other countries elsewhere in the world. The South African COVID-19 response is distinctive in a whole series of ways. I remember living through it, so it's partly memory as well, not just archival memory that we've got here. Um, we had a heavy disease, um, disease burden with regards to HIV AIDS. And there was a whole series of uh, concerns expressed about whether we would be hit particularly hard as a result of this. Other people spoke to the fact that we have a comparatively young population. It was a novel virus, of course. Nobody knew how it would behave, and so there was a whole great uncertainty. The government opted for a hard lockdown. Um, and distinctively from the rest of Africa was not the hard lockdown. Many other African countries developed that policy option. But the idea was that we would lead with tracking and tracing and testing, and we would be distinctive in that way with regards to the level of our response. Did receive praise um, in the medical sphere for the how tightly we locked down. But that is not free of consequence with regards to the impact of the economy. And that has led to dislocations, which we are still working our way out of I will have to defer to fact checkers based on where we exactly stand in South Africa as of September 2023 when we're speaking. But according to many indicators, our, our GDP per capita has not recovered to pre-COVID-19 levels. It may just have got there. If it has, it hasn't by much. We've had a very slow recovery, and that is partly a consequence of the hardness with which we decided to lock down. As we bring today's dialogue to a close, can you tell us about your subsequent research? Where has your attention gone since completing this work? Fortunately, you get invited um, and in encouraged to participate in various collaborative enterprises which explore aspects of my work, and that is very stimulating with regards to further developing many of the themes and collaboration with colleagues. Uh, since then, um, I have also been the editor of a book called History Beyond Apartheid, New Approaches in South African Historiography. And that was the idea of 
collaboratively exploring the themes of what is South African historiography today, what new directions are discernible within the field. And that was um, published earlier this year, uh, earlier in 2023 by Manchester University Press. Um, I am also looking to broaden my horizons as a historian as well, um, moving beyond these sort of 20th, 21st century South African frame. So I'm looking to go deeper temporally um, into history um, than the, 19th, the 20th century and also spatially beyond South Africa's borders as well. And I'm working, struggling at the moment, drowning, and I, I won't be drowned completely um, in a book on the history of imperialism um, and the comparative history of empire. And that's what's engaging me, absorbing me fixing me in place to the extent that I'm struggling to focus meaningfully on other things at the moment. I would like to end by letting you know how thankful I am for your generosity in your thoughtful and erudite and eloquent answers throughout the course of our dialogue. Thank you for everything you taught us during the course of this session together. And thank you for all the silent sacrifice that you invested in the labor that went into this book and the unnoticed time, effort, and complex trauma that goes into producing scholarship like this. Thank you for everything you've undergone for the benefit of your readers and for the benefits of all humanity. Well, thank you for providing the access to your audience and for the invitation to speak. Much appreciated and I've enjoyed it hugely. Thank you. Thank you. It was my privilege and my honor. As we end today, I am your host on the New Books in African Studies podcast, Ari Barbalat. Today, I've been in dialogue with Tula Simpson. He is Associate Professor in the Department of Historical and Heritage Studies at the University of Pretoria. We have been discussing his newly published book, The History of South Africa from 1902 to the Present, published in London by Hearst Publishers 2021. Thank you. Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers.